Lord, we do praise you this morning and do want to lift your name up and glorify you. We desire that you be magnified in all that we do, particularly as we look at what you've revealed to us, that we may not only look at it with the due respect and adoration that we should, but also to note that you desire us to be transformed as a result. And we do desire that your spirit work within all of us through your word this morning. If there be any distraction or anything that would hinder us, that we would desire that we would confess any sin or deal with setting aside whatever may be distracting us. Commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Romans this morning, just ask you a question. How many times have you read in the Old Testament, for example, you're reading the book of Judges or even the book of Exodus, the children of Israel just come out of Egypt, God does all these miracles, parts the Red Sea, appears to them in visible form, they've got all these contacts with God. And then all of a sudden, chapter 32, they make this golden calf or book of Judges. You see the writer just lays out the stupidity of what they're doing. And we read it and we think, why didn't they learn? What? What? You know, why are they living this way? So you could almost say that we have, humankind has a propensity to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But the question is, how many times have you kind of thought that in your mind? You know, just this, you know, they should know better. They should act differently. Tell everybody the Israelites had nothing on me. And that's the whole point. How many, bringing it closer to home, how many believers do you actually observe walking in the Spirit, in the body of Christ? Even on a Sunday morning on our best behavior. How many people are actually walking in the Spirit? How many believers know even what that means or are familiar with the concept even? Well, we're in Romans 8, and that is the focus of this passage. It's kind of the key. If you think about the Old Testament believers, they did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that goes along with that. So you can almost excuse them because they did not have what what we have in terms of dealing with sin and the old nature. They did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They did not have resurrection power. All of that is available to us. So when we look at them, I think we can excuse them, especially like Connie says, if we look at ourselves and how many times do we appropriate what God has provided for us. So this was true in the first century with the believers that lived in Rome. Paul would have walked by this ancient temple as we did. Remember that, Craig? And we observed Colosseum that was under construction in the day that Paul was there. So these things have persisted all the way from Old Testament times and As Mary Lee said, you know, the propensity of human nature is still the same. So, the issues are the same, the problems are the same. The only difference is that we have a lot more. So we have justification, and I think there was salvation available in the Old Testament. People could come into a relationship, 
but they did not have all that uh, we have in terms of sanctification. So chapter 6 through 8, sanctification, we're breaking it down into three parts. Honey? So would you say that sanctification is part of the old covenant? I'm careful when I refer to the new covenant, because I don't think it is in effect yet. Excuse you? (laughs) (laughs) We are under a new covenant. That's Didn't problematic. Did say that? Uh, another mm-hmm. thing I have to learn what is it? What is it? What do you call people who... People like me? Please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we call them dispensationalists. <laughs> oh, really? It's not the dispensation. We're not in that dispensation. Well, you need to be careful because when you have covenants, you have parties to a covenant, right? Who are the parties to all of the covenants? and specifically the New Covenant. It's reiterated in Hebrews 8, the nation of Israel. They are parties to the covenant. They are under the covenant. And when the New Testament speaks of us not being under law, that means we're not under the Mosaic covenant. We're not under it. So to say that we are in or under the New Covenant is not quite accurate, and I don't think quite biblical, because the New Covenant, I don't think, will actually be implemented until the Millennial Kingdom, until Israel is converted, essentially. Well, if we're not under a covenant, then how can we claim God's promises? I don't agree with that. You don't agree with that? I think Jesus instituted the covenant, though. He made all of the provisions for the New Covenant, and the New Covenant was available to Israel. Now, the majority of believers, I think Bill is along these lines, see that we benefit and we receive some of the benefits of the new covenant. And that's a possibility. Strictly speaking, we are not under the new covenant. We're not parties to it. Just as we are not parties of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but it's good to clarify these things. We're not under the Abrahamic covenant. That was with Abraham and his descendants. But we are benefiting because one of the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant is that Israel will bless Gentiles or non-Jewish. So we receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Is that understandable? What what, what claim then does that give us upon God going to him and... And, I mean, what what provision then do we have to know that we can go before him or to just say, well, you're not part of this covenant, so it doesn't, you know, so these promises mm-hmm. don't apply to you. So mm-hmm. what, what do we put in our hearts knowing that, I mean, we do have the Holy Spirit. Right. Is that what all the yes. covenants do? Yes, yes, yes. the new covenant. Pardon me? The Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of the new covenant. How can you see one of the new covenants? Where do you get that? Give me a verse. Oh, I <laughs> So if you're going to be dogmatic, give me a verse. All right. Let me give you what I, I think okay. we have. Jesus' death on the cross set in motion everything necessary for the new covenant. Okay. Had Israel received their Messiah, the new covenant would have been implemented and put into effect. My view, and I've kind of studied this more recently, 
My view is that the new covenant will not be put into effect and implemented until the parties of the covenant are involved. In other words, the covenant is with Israel. Now, the question is whether or not we are, because of Christ's death, benefiting from the provisions of the covenant. And I would say the provisions of the new covenant are very, very similar to what we are experiencing. But they may not be exactly. And if you look at the details of them and interpret the provisions of the new covenant, you'll see that it, they don't 100% match. They're very similar, like the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the new covenant. We receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, whether it's the same as the new covenant or whether it's similar. That's the, that's the debate that we're having right here between Bill and I, okay? The majority of the church would say that we are benefiting from the provisions, not parties, but benefiting from the provisions of the new covenant in dwelling presence. But if you look even, the provision, one of the main ones, is that he will put his word in our hearts. Now, in a very nebulous way, his word, we have illumination and that sort of thing, but... Quote for me, Deuteronomy 17. Anyone? <laughs> Is Deuteronomy 17, and I just, I'm just arbitrarily just pulling, or, yes. Yeah, I want you, well, if, if you don't have that one, quote me Deuteronomy 29 then. Is, that, is Deuteronomy 29 written on your heart? Come on, you got New Testament. Yeah, you you, the words you, of the covenant, which the Lord commanded Moses. Yeah, you're reading it. Of course I am. Well, I want you to quote it from you your just heart. Told me I'm not a part of this covenant. Why should I have this covenant memorized? <laughs> because you're I saying that you, because you're telling me that the new covenant is in effect. The new covenant is new for Israel, okay? Mm-hmm. But it happens to be the new covenant under which we as the Gentile population... So is it different? Is it different from Jeremiah 31? Different from what they knew. So there's two new covenants? No, it is different from what the Israelites knew as a covenant. Okay, you're making my point. There's some There's some differences here. That's that's the point I'm making here. Of course there are differences, right? Come on! Okay, so, so seal the Holy Spirit is all over the New Testament... There's uh, Ephesians 1. Okay, look, my point, my point is if you look, my point, pardon me? 2 Corinthians 5, 5 is another one. When we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, He's given us a spirit as a guarantee. Now, you're, you're asking for what? I'm asking, is that the new covenant? And I'm saying, and I'm arguing a fine point here. I'm saying that it's not strictly speaking the new covenant because we're not parties to it. See, I think I disagree with that. Where, where are we parties to the new covenant? Jesus said that I, the blood which established the new covenant is shed for you. Yes, the blood is shed for us. Which is establishing the new covenant. In Inaugurating it or initiating it. He used the word established. Yeah, okay, initiating it, but so nowhere. Reading this plain, the new, the new covenant was instituted right. at the last supper. Okay, and that's the majority view. I think it's perfect. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you an article to read. <laughs> I do not think so. Now we are in the Bible. 
Why do you think we are not under Because we're not parties to it. And Bill but is Bill is, said, Bill is arguing that we are. But Jesus just said we were. But there so maybe what you're trying to say is because there is more provision than just that, which includes the Jews coming into the inheritance they had mm-hmm. from the time of Abraham when right. God said, I will do all of this because they have never received they have never received the inheritance that they have. And so we all agree with that. The right. Jews have never right. received what was promised to them. Right. But at that time, Gentiles weren't even included in it. Well, and Gentiles have they, always been in the plan of God. But but th- that was not a promise to them. It was right. in the plan, but we're still cringy. But at this time right here, because Israel has not claimed their inheritance in the Lord, they have not yet received it. We have, we will not ever sit on the thrones the way he's mm-hmm. promised to the Jews. Right. We will never have a promise like to all the tribes that he made. Right. We'll never have right. Those. right. But we have inclusion now in that covenant that was really not available until Jesus shed his blood for our sins, right? Because we we could never enter. We would always be consigned to the courts of the Gentiles, mm-hmm. no matter what we do. Well, what I I'm saying what I'm saying that we have everything in Christ that is provided by the death of Christ. Everything that is provided by the death of Christ. The death of Christ. Provides for well, well. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, all everything we're talking about. The death of Christ provides all of that for Jew and Gentile. Point I'm making, specifically the new covenant. The death of Christ provides for it also, but we're not under the new covenant because we're not parties to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the majority view, and remember, the majority view is always usually so, the wrong one. <laughs> Just kidding. There are probably clarification when we hit Romans chapter. There'll be some. There'll be some clarification there. Yeah, another another verse to look up along these lines, and then we got to get back to Romans. But uh, look up Galatians three and. Paul in Galatians, not now, just on your own. Galatians 3, Paul ties what we have in Christ to the Abrahamic covenant, not the new covenant. He ties it to the Abrahamic covenant. We are receiving the blessing of the ultimate Israel. And that ultimate blessing based on the crucifixion on the cross and all that's provided with that includes the indwelling presence, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and all that we are experiencing now, the issue is whether or not that's the new covenant or the outworking of it. And what I'm saying, the difference between what Bill and I are saying, and some of most of you, is that you are saying we are experiencing the new covenant. I'm saying we're not, but we have something very, very similar to it based on the cross, based on the crucifixion. So, look okay. look carefully at the provisions. The provisions of the New Covenant also include the land. Provision of the New Covenant uh, includes restoration of Israel. In fact, this is the main thing, is restoration of Israel. Maddie? Well, and then, and then we need to move on. The Abrahamic Covenant actually first provides land. For right? Israel. For Israel, 
Yeah. Yes. So if you're going to be picky about it, I <laughs> well, I'm being picky. <laughs> yeah, the land is all is theirs eternally, whether they're in it or out of it. That's Absolutely. that's another issue. Absolutely. So we've been grafted in promises of the covenant, and, and the new covenant is actually at the final point of the one of them. Yeah. 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 Right. Right? Yes. Through all. Yes, yes. Through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yep. Yep. Right? Yes. Okay. And Galatians 3 ties the blessings that we have in Christ to the Abrahamic covenant, not the new. So are you trying, are you telling us that you believe that the new covenant does not begin until the millennium? Yes. Well, it begins with the death of Christ, and when the party, the second party, God is obviously the first, when the second party implements it, then it's in its full effect, and that won't happen until they're converted, and when they're converted, the Lord will return, and it'll be enjoyed during the millennial kingdom. But if it was established with Jesus' death, it exists. Yeah. Well. And if it exists... And we come to Christ based on his death. Right. Then we are entering into covenant with him. That's Bill's view. I'm lying. <laughs> I'm obviously arguing that. It's like, are we not in covenant with God? And I that's the majority That's the majority of conservative, Bible-believing believers. Yeah. Corinthians, we've been assigned to be ministers of the new covenant. No. That's what it says. Yeah. That's the most troubling verse for my my viewpoint. It absolutely is. I think it's so <laughs> <laughs> because it says no, we are ministers of yeah. the new covenant that Jesus okay. established. All right, I think we've hashed it over. I think we know our positions. We know our positions, Wait. and yeah. we're going to go to the stake for it. I don't want to know what you believe. My No, it's good to debate and discuss these things. And we're still friends, right? You may still be our teacher. (laughs) Maybe this this might be the last week. (laughs) Okay, back to Romans. Sanctification. Three parts. Principles. We've emphasized many principles. And the heart of everything we're talking about is laid out in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is not a digression, but it deals, it's going to give us more principles, but it looks at it more from the negative, the problems that we will encounter in sanctification, and we finally got to chapter 8, where the the way we overcome the problems is because there's power available, the power of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 7... All is f- focused on I, 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 I. Remember we noted, what, what was it, 20-some times I is mentioned, Paul using himself as an example. And we had another debate going there with Maddie and I on terms of whether he's speaking before he was a believer or when he was a believer. And I took the position that he was a believer. Uh, I don't know if I lost that debate as well. Did I lose that one? <laughs> Oh, the jury's still out on that Anyway, I took the position that Paul is describing the Christian life using himself as the one that struggled 
and ends up wretched man that I am. Then he asks the question, who, not what, not what church or what denomination or what principle or what technique, but who. So it's embodying in a person the answer. Who will deliver me? Chapter 8 answers that question. So it's found in God himself and more specifically the Holy Spirit. So we're in chapter 8, we, verses 1 through 11, we have the power over sinful flesh. The sinful flesh is the subject of chapter 7, but there's power to overcome it. We have freedom from condemnation. This is the heart of chapter 8, or at least this part of uh, power that's available. There's freedom and power there, 1 through 4. We looked at that last time. want to review it. It's so important that I think we need to review it. So, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, from the English... And it's a little unfortunate because I I don't like it when you have to almost depend on the Greek to get the meaning here. But this is an example where understanding the Greek word there is important and it makes a big difference. Most commentators look at it almost from the English idea here and this idea of condemnation. It almost conveys the idea that we're talking about eternal issues in verse 1. In other words justification issues, no condemnation in the future. I made the point before I went to Brazil, and then I reminded you last time, katakrima there. It's a very interesting word, very unique, and seems to be defined in 516. We didn't make a big point of it when we were there, but I kind of went back there. It includes both aspects, both the sentencing of guilt the sentencing of condemnation, but it also includes the outworking or the punishment aspect, katakrima. So he's talking about, and in this context, I made the big point, we're talking about sanctification. We're in that context. We're in that portion of Scripture. So I think he's dealing with the idea of the Christian walk. After chapter 7, wretched man that I am, is God going to, Discipline, punish, well, that has been dealt with with the cross as well. Not just the eternal aspect of condemnation, but the immediate, ongoing, present aspect of it as well. And if you're looking at death, like we've looked at it throughout this passage, now it's not going to be mentioned here, but we'll see it later on in the same context here. We're talking about we can be believers, we can be born again, We can have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but when we're living as if we are in control, like chapter 7, we're living in death, basically. We're not producing anything eternal, anything spiritual, anything lasting. We are living like the unbeliever who only has the flesh. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's no difference between the believer that lives in the flesh, and he's going to contrast that. We're going to see that again. Living in the flesh is death, he's going to say. We won't get that far this morning. In fact, we're not going to get too far this morning. But anyway, there is now no condemnation, which includes the eternal, but it also includes the immediate and the present. There's consequences to sin. 
If you drink too much, you become an addict. A Christian can become an alcoholic and battle in that area. A Christian can battle with all of the sexual areas, all of the areas that the unbeliever has. I think we're addicted to sin. I think we are addicted that's to the, sin. That's, the, it's all that's the, the bottom same, line. Same the old nature is addicted to sin. And we saw from chapter 7, it does not change. God does not reform the old nature. The key is living in the new nature that he has given to us as a result of Christ's death on the cross. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's enough in Christ Jesus. In other words, those that are believers, not those becoming believers, but those that are in believers, And I also made a big point that in the King James Version, and there's strong manuscript evidence for an addition that makes it more specific. In other words, he's making it more specific. Those who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And some very, very good Bible teachers believe that it's authentic. In other words, it should be included in the text. But even if it's not, we have that almost exact phrase in verse 4 in the same context. At the end of verse 4, we have... So he's talking about believers, and the context dictates as well, the context dealing with sanctification. So this is not referring to the unbeliever who now is a believer and has received future no condemnation, but it is dealing with the Christian walk. For the law, and we've been stressing this at the end of chapter 7, namas... Not capitalized, there's a principle that he's talking about. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law, another law, of sin and death. That's chapter 7. It acts like a law. And last time I used the illustration of a Boeing 777. How many of you think that you can lift that 777 off the ground? How many of you with... Oh, that Craig can. Yeah. I've, I've got my pilot's license. I think I can figure out how to fly it. <laughs> I'm not saying flying it. I'm oh, saying lifting it. Lift. I said lift. <laughs> Straight off the ground. Okay. We'll, we'll get to Craig in a moment here. <laughs> Wingspan, 200 feet. Speed, 550 miles per hour. 300 passengers. Empty weight, 150 tons. No one can lift that. In fact, all of us in this room together would not be able to lift that. Full of passengers and cargo and fuel and baggage, 330 tons, so twice the empty weight. The point being, you can't lift it because there's a law. There's a physical law of gravity that you cannot overcome in order to lift that. But... We build such a thing and with such size because of another law, the law, laws of aerodynamics. So aerodynamic forces overcome the law of gravity. And I use that as an illustration. So you have enough lift when you get to a certain speed. And if you have a pilot like Craig, you get that thing going. But you have to get these aerodynamic forces operating in order to overcome the law of gravity that's pulling down 330 tons. So you have to have enough lift to overcome that. 
And when you do, obviously, you can soar above the clouds. All right? So you have one law, the law of sin and death. No way can any of us, chapter 7 says, we are not capable of overcoming the law of sin and death. Flesh is not capable. What we need is a law that counteracts that, and that's exactly what we have in verse 2. So, verse 2 tells us about the law of the spirit of life. That would be, if you want to state it slightly differently, that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives through the new nature. So there's resurrection power. And just as those aerodynamic forces overcome powerful laws of gravity, so also the law of the spirit of life can overcome the law or the forces of... So we have the law of sin, sin and death, Also in verse 2, the principle of evil. And this is what he talked about in chapter 7. So we spent a lot of time looking at that, 721, 723. There's a principle of evil or a law of evil. It's a, you can say a spiritual law that you you just can't escape it. You need something to overtake it. Connie, did you have a? Um, Principle, the law of the spirit of life. Think of it as something like a law of gravity that it it's there. It, it's but it is not available to unless we are in Christ. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is that here. Right. And his presence in my life right. is a sign of the fact that I'm in Yes. And if not under a covenant, I a new covenant. <laughs> what kind of relationship am I in with him? Is not governed. It's governed by a law, in, a principle. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That law that he instituted when he promised that if you receive him, you have life. It's based on promise, and it's based on what God did on the cross in through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's based on what God did. In other words, he implemented something on the cross, something huge. I mean, it's not, and I I think I'm proposing to you it's bigger than what you're telling me. In other words, you're saying it's just the new covenant and we have a part in it. I'm saying it includes the new covenant and more. You said that before. We've gone over that time and time again in all of your other topics too. That the fact that even the Abrahamic Davidic covenant it it comes in stages as the people take the land. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, this is. Different from what you said before, but it sounds different. I try not to contradict myself, yeah. Yeah. So there's these two two laws that you can think of, like laws of nature, although these are laws that pertain to the spiritual realm. Laws of nature pertain to the physical material realm. Laws of the spirit realm. In other words, there is a spiritual realm where demons and angels and God reside and we enter in and out of that. We don't see it. We don't even sense it sometimes. So there, there's this, these laws. There's two of them. One of them is very, very powerful. One of sin and death. Chapter seven. We spent the whole time in there seeing that we can't counteract it. Self will won't do it. Devotion to the law won't do it. Trying to, uh, live a Christian life in our own power, doesn't do, doesn't overcome the law of sin and death. And that was kind of his conclusion there in 7, 21, 23, and we have it mentioned in 8, 2. 
And then we're going to see in 8, 3, and 4, we'll get to that law capitalized in the text. At least New American Standard interprets it that way, referring to the Mosaic law or covenant. And that's 8, 3, and 4, 7, 22. Okay? So that brings us to verse 4. So that, well, let me start with verse 3. For, for what the law could not do. Not that there was anything wrong with the law. Remember, we spent a lot of time in chapter 7 talking about the law is spiritual. The law is valuable. God has a purpose. But the purpose of the law is not to empower us. There's no power given in the law. For the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The problem is with the flesh. The flesh cannot do the law. The problem is not the law. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And in this context, he's dealing with both aspects. The aspects of eternity is settled on the cross, but so also is the temporal issue of sin, temptation that we experience now. He dealt with that as well. Ongoing sin in the Christian life. He condemned sin in the flesh, and it has a purpose. And here's the Christian walk. So that the requirement of the law, and keep in mind, this is singular here. That's very important. The requirement of the law, and here we have it capitalized. So the law, in other words, the provisions of the law, the Ten Commandments, the finer issues of the law that deal with the heart, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And you need to look at it as a passive. In other words, it's not us fulfilling it. It is God fulfilling it in us. That's the secret. That's the key. The Holy Spirit giving us the power, but it's the Holy Spirit doing it, giving us the power to be able to do what the law requires. So freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever we want to do. That's license. It's not part of what God intends. The other side of the coin, if we try to do what the law tells us to do in our own strength, that's legalism. In other words, we try to gain brownie points by trying to obey God. That's legalism. The Bible speaks against that as well. That was the problem that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. They were legalists. But then you go to the other extreme, license, I can do whatever I want to. I'm free in Christ. No, I am free in Christ in order to do what God wants me to do. Because before, I didn't have any power to do that. But now I have freedom because that power has been broken. So that the requirement of the law, in other words, what God desires, what God's law implements, and we might summarize it, Jesus summarized it in love. Love the Lord your God with with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the embodiment of the law. And if we can focus on it, we fulfill the requirement. But even that we can't do. It's the Holy Spirit producing this love through us. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And if it's not clear in terms of the context, this pertains to those who do not walk according to the flesh. In other words, if you're not living or It pertains to those not living in chapter 7. Self-effort, trying to fulfill the law, gutting it out, self-will, etc. 
So it pertains to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but it pertains to those who walk according to the Spirit. Connie. My, my version says so that the righteous requirement of the law. So with that, you know, as you said, love. Yeah. The requirement. Righteousness being us being in right stand with God. No, well, it's from that word group, dikaiasune, dikaias. It's, it's, it's not dikaias, but it's, it's one of the word group words in there. And probably the best way to think of it, the requirement, and this is probably a good translation, the righteous acts that come out. In other words, the things that we actually do or live out, those that are spelled out in the Mosaic law, those things, those acts, are fulfilled in us. Okay? You don't have the Greek word ha- handy, do you? Dikaioma. Okay, yeah. There you go. Very good. Greek scholar in the back there. Uh, this is impressive. Uh, he's out doing M- Maddie, so... <laughs> yeah, I know it. <laughs> And she still keeps coming, even though I harass her every time. So that the dikaioma of the law... Ooh, better for There we go. There's even a better scholar there. Of the law might be fulfilled. In other words, it's accomplished in us. Not by us, but in us as we walk in the Spirit. So that's kind of what we want to endeavor to do. And just kind of a reminder, Just I kind of started off with looking at Israel, but since Pentecost, just to emphasize what we have above what any Old Testament saint had, or any even any believer that lived during the life of Christ, the twelve disciples living with Christ, they did not have what we have until after Pentecost. Okay? They're sealed in the Holy Spirit. That sealing is a New Testament concept. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4... The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament saints didn't have indwelling presence. Only select few kings, prophets, sometimes judges, and even some kings lost the indwelling presence. Saul was one that lost it. Others, no mention is made, and because of their evil, you would assume they didn't even have the indwelling presence. So it's very selective in the Old Testament. The common believer did not have indwelling presence. They did not have, because of that, they did not have illumination. The Holy Spirit illumines. Holy Spirit seals. The Holy Spirit indwells. The, the believer illumines. The Holy Spirit fills. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. These are all New Testament concepts. How is filling different? Well, we're commanded to be filled, Ephesians, what is it, 5, 18, which tells us that it's possible. And Romans 7, that's an example of not being filled in the Spirit because you're walking in the flesh. So you're either walking in the flesh and or you are filled with the Spirit. Synonymous ideas. Is that, t- that ties into don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Where we can we can grieve, yes, and make room for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, or we can start locking doors and putting up Holy Spirit gates so that the Holy Spirit can't wander in parts of your house. Right, good, good imagery there. Yes, so the filling 
I think is an ongoing thing. In other words, if we go into the flesh, we confess that and we pray to be filled or we allow the Spirit to fill us. So the filling of the Holy Spirit, that was not available to Old Testament believers. Intimate, close fellowship. To have fellowship, what did the Old Testament saints have to do? They had to approach God and his temple where he manifested his presence, bring a sacrifice to approach him. We have immediate access because of indwelling and we have that immediate fellowship. We don't bring a sacrifice. We don't have to go to Grace Church or wherever. So we have fellowship. And I think what we have in view here, that's why I'm highlighting it on the slide there, is we have empowerment. We have empowerment. In other words, he has given us power to be able to do what the law requires. So now we have the freedom to do what God wants us to do and the freedom to serve serve him. No, that's that's what the Mosaic law required. In other words, we could we can fulfill it. We're not under it, but it requires certain things of God's people and we are able to uh to to do it. Okay? We have intercession. Now we haven't got to that. That's later on in the book of Romans. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We have no example of that in the Old Testament. Eighth, we have a comforter. This is what Jesus promised in the upper room. And remember, it was a promise. I will send the comforter. The disciples, before the crucifixion, the Lord's suppers before the crucifixion, did not have that. Jesus promises it as a future blessing. So we have that comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Convicting ministry, the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we have references to prophets that convicted, that were filled with Holy Spirit. And in an indirect way, people had conviction. We have it directly. The Holy Spirit, because he indwells us, can convict us that we are walking in the flesh. Can admonish us to change. This is kind of the next step after conviction. And I think in this context, it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us. It's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies. That's the context. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified. In contrast to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is trying on my own efforts to sanctify myself. I fail. Wretched man that I am. That's the end product. And in the process of sanctification, he uses us in service. In all ministry needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit if, in fact, it is effective. That's the abiding in Christ idea, Christ indwelling. Christ indwells us as well, not just the Holy Spirit. But the means is the work of the Holy Spirit. And there may be others. These are all I could think of. The Old Testament saint did not have any of that. What about, like, Enoch, who said he walked yeah. It's not a widespread thing is what he's saying. I mean, God did these things in the Old Testament to certain people, but only limited people. Yeah. Not only limited, but not to the extent that we have either. There's no mention of indwelling presence in Enoch. It's very... It's on the outside. Yeah. It's, 
Yeah. Bill? Yeah. David specifically prayed that God would not take his spirit from him. Mm-hmm. So it was possible to lose to, it. To lose that relationship. And because he saw what happened to Saul. Exactly. The spirit, in fact, it's very clear. Spirit left Saul. And what even happened after that to Saul? Sent a tormenting spirit. A tormenting spirit seemed to indwell him. Kind of filled the gap that had been left by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. got to be filled by something. Yep, exactly. So this is significant. So this walk, this empowering, this is, this is why the New Testament writers like Paul here in Romans speak in glorious terms concerning what we have in Christ. Okay? Let's look at this idea. Uh, well, let's kind of save this for next time. We're kind of up against the time here. You might do a little word study on the word walk, because we have that, we saw that in verse 4, those who walk according to the Spirit. He's giving us some imagery, and what I want to do next time, I was going to do it today, but we got a little sidetracked with New Covenant stuff, which we don't have a schedule to be, do we? No. Are we uh, we missing somebody's schedule here? Okay. So we can divert all we want to, is that Okay. As long as we get on track. As long as we get back on track. Get back in the spirit, right? (laughs) Well, think about this idea. This is, I think this is a common image, common with Paul, but not exclusively Paul. The idea of walking. And I think the essence, the, it's the image of taking step by step. And I think the Christian life is a step by step endeavor. In other words, it's a walk, and it's spoken of that in that way in this context here. So it's good to look at the word, and what I want to do is give you the results of a word study where that word is used very commonly in the New Testament in different contexts, in a negative sense, in a positive sense, and it's used very commonly in terms of the Christian walk. It is viewed as a walk. So it's a journey. It has a destination that has an end point, but it also means that we're not there yet. There'll be a day when we get there, not in this life, but we will get there. And the key is to keep walking. Key is to keep walking. Sometimes we get off the path and God has provided a means to get back on the path. So an imagery that is very good in terms of describing what the Christian walk is all about. This is the concept of the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. This is the concept. There's a lot of other images that are used. The vine and the branches is an illustration there. Connectedness, so that life flows through the branches. This is the idea of a Christian walk. Several other images putting on. In other words, like in the morning or in the evening, you put off the sweaty garments, throw them in the uh, hamper, and then you put on clean new garments. Another image of the Christian walk, it's continually putting on the new. And there are several other images like that that we'll look at next time to kind of emphasize what it means to walk in the Spirit. So who wants to close for us and pick up? We didn't even get to verse 5 yet, did we? Oh, well. Sorry about that. Mary Lee. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that all of you just praise you. It means that we do not yet even fully 
holy rest what you have for us as we walk toward you, as we desire to come to you to transform by your spirit. Father, I thank our walk with you. You are an infinite God in the future. I thank you, Father, that this is characteristic of life forever. Will ever come what he wants. And we pray that that would reach us, that that would strengthen us, cause us to desire to walk with you closely as we go through this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.